Welcome back. I'm Ian Martin, and yes, I have redecorated. And yeah, yeah, I I know you don't like it. Welcome to the start of the second series of We're All Stories in the End. And for this first episode in the new series, I'd like to welcome a very special guest indeed, a man who wrote three of my very favourite new adventures, as well as one of my favourite crime fiction series. He was script editor for Doctor Who's Golden Age as well. So let's all say hello to Andrew Cartmel. I know you probably don't want to be reminded of this item because it's a long, long time ago that you wrote well, it now. No, but only for two reasons, which may not be the reasons you think. Number one, I don't like the cover art. I, I'm right. sorry, don't. Um, the other thing is, I never wrote a book called Cat's Cradle Warhead. I wrote a book called Warhead. Sure. I wrote a trilogy, Warhead, Warlock and Warchild. My sister said if I wrote another one, I should call it Wardrobe. But <laughs> I only have recorded instance of my sister making a joke. But they had this stupid idea that, to back up a bit, one reason I did the new adventures was that there was supposed to be quite a lot of creative freedom. The money was great. The money was better. They offered us, they offered me one of their books and I told my agent to say no because the money was so terrible. My agent was really excited because he almost never got to say no to anyone because they just had to take the deal. And I said, no. And so they came back with a, an improved offer, which to my surprise, they then offered to all the other writers, which was only fair. But I thought, hey, that was my deal. They're all getting it. <laughs> But it's ultimately a good thing. So, that's, a, I guess, brilliant and terrible at the same time. Yeah, but so I did it because they improved the money because the books were not novelizations; they're original novels. They were pitched at a more adult audience, and they were longer. They weren't like Arrow length. For people who don't know, Arrow was the publisher of the the novelizations, and they were very short books. So they were longer. They were theoretically there was more creative freedom involved. And I say theoretically, because one of the first things they did is they suddenly got cold feet and decided that people would only buy the books if they had a built-in arc. And so the three books, my book and two other books by two other poor writers were suddenly grouped together in a notional trilogy called uh, Cat's Cradle, which, and I hated it then, I hate it now. And all I did, I think I had a catwalk Pass in the background of one of my scenes in deference <laughs> to this stupid idea. But they immediately began to row back on the, the few things that made it appealing. And I, as you can tell, I'm still resentful of that. So when you say, I, I don't welcome seeing that book, only for those reasons, the, the cover art not being great and for what all that stuff I just said. Well, it may probably not surprise you one iota to learn that that's you know, 30 years on, that's the perceived fan wisdom that in no way is Cat's Cradle really a trilogy in anything but name. Um, and it's quite a, a blatant bit of, uh, 
you know, or audience management to get people to buy all the books, which didn't and, need to happen. It was a good uh, yeah, trilogy. Yeah, misunderstanding of the market. People would have just bought anything that had Doctor Who on it. And yeah. if, you, know, you make your writers unhappy. And I'm being a writer myself. I'm all in favor of writers not being unhappy. Well, exactly. Um, so just to take you back one step, when when you heard the new adventures were happening, and I don't know if they would have approached you or you approached them, but it sounds yeah, like Virgin Art came to you. Them. Right. I didn't know it was going. I don't think I was where it was going down particularly, but they came to me and asked me if I wanted to do one of the books. Right. And, and it, did you feel sort of vaguely proprietorial about the seventh Doctor and Ace at that time? Yeah, but it, that didn't mean I took a great interest in other people's books. It just felt I had a strong um, prejudice about how I felt it should be done. <laughs> now, what um, the the reason I've invited you on when I haven't invited uh, many other writers of these books is that, and I'm going to you know put my cards on the table here. I I love they your. They wouldn't do it. They wouldn't do <laughs> it. Said no. I I couldn't find them online. They were too busy, and in many cases, dead. Uh, no. Um, but your three books are amongst my three favourites. Certainly, of the new adventures, I think I think your your books are the best. They work for me because you. Um, and I don't know if you came up with this in the first place, but there is a quote. And I can't I can't find out who it's attributed to now. That the seventh doctor works best when you imagine him as like a mountain range viewed through yeah. mist. It was you. From from a distance, yeah. That yeah, yeah. <laughs> Excellent. Well done. That's a very good quote. And that's the kind of uh, doctor that works for me. I do have to um add a caveat that memory can play one false because I had a very clear memory about the development of the character Ace what I did and what Ian Briggs did. And then we found the paperwork. It didn't turn out to be completely different. But the mountain range one uh, rings a bell. Definitely, I, I remember coming up with that because that was the idea. The idea is that something big and shrouded in mystery and in the distance and, you know, impressive, but don't get too close in the sense that as soon as you may get up close and personal, he just becomes another guy. Absolutely. So the other elements that go into Warhead... Um, it's a very sort of cyberpunk, dark future kind of novel. And I wanted to ask you if you can remember what kind of things you were reading 30 years ago oh, and completely. what your formative... I mean, one of the things that motivated me to do the book, or at least motivated me in the way that I did do the book, was when I was on Doctor Who, Ben Aronovich, who knew that I'd been a science fiction fan and sort of had left the church. <laughs> like, I wasn't really reading science fiction anymore. He said, you must read this. And he gave me Neuromancer by William Gibson, which blew my mind and then he gave me count zero which was great and gibson has done other some other interesting stuff but i don't think anything that quite stands with those two novels and so when i sat down to write a science fiction novel i.e my doctor who novel i that was a template that not only was freshest in my mind it was also what I, you know i'd really loved those books so I, I was kind of itching to try and do one myself a cyberpunk dystopian future type thing um, it's not the only way to do it, but it was just it was just echoing what I'd been reading myself and loving quite recently. And were you bearing bearing that in mind, bearing in mind you were going for a more adult novel with a different approach to writing the character of the Doctor, were you aiming it at a specific kind of age range or were you thinking this is so for everyone? For grown-ups. But I mean, yeah. when I went 
for my interview with Jonathan Powell, who is head of drama. He might have been head of serials. I can, there was various names, but he was the guy who had to approve my appointment at the BBC. Uh, we had this interview, which went quite well. I said all the right things. At the very end, he said, who is Doctor Who for? And I had a politician's answer. Uh, I said, oh, it's for everybody, <laughs> right? And he said, no, it's for children. And I said, oh, okay. But I, I, at the time I thought, no, I didn't say it, but I thought, no, it's not for children. <laughs> I think it should be aimed, pitched at grown-ups, but accessible to children in the sense that there should be no reason that kids couldn't watch it. Although bear in mind, it might give them nightmares because I mean, that's sort of, in a way it's what it's for, like Grimm's fairy tales. But I, I much later realized that the reason he specifically said that was, I think, to do with vengeance on virus. That there'd been some stories that had really been too vicious and violent and grown up in quotes in their own kind of way. So I, it was only years later that I realized where he was coming from when he when he said that he didn't want to repeat of things like vengeance on virus. But so, but I that's all of which is just to say I've always thought Doctor Who's for grown-ups, but you know that kids not to shouldn't be deliberately excluded yeah i think there's there's a kind of um feeling certainly with the tom baker era that it's kind of aimed at undergraduates and yes, teenagers and children and the parents undergraduates but it's, would be exactly it's on that yeah it's it's it's, it's a whole spectrum at university when it was on watching it and loving the stars yeah. i wasn't doing that not because i didn't like doctor but i had other things and it wasn't on my radar well, quite. I think, I mean, it's it's very easy with the benefit of hindsight to point out where Jonathan Powell went wrong. But if it was totally aimed at children, then why was he scheduling it at 7.30? I mean, that's bath time. Everyone knows that. So you've written Warhead. Um, a couple of years have gone by and then you came back with Warlock, which again uh, was, I think, almost exclusively set in Canterbury. Well, yeah, um, I... I was born in London. At the age of five, my family moved to Canada and I grew up in Canada. So from the age of five to 15, my formative years, I was basically Canadian. We moved back, which is to say my mum and dad moved back and took the two younger kids with them, me and my brother. And we lived in Deal uh, in Kent. Mm. Canterbury was the nearest big town and I had a lot of fun in Canterbury and I eventually ended up doing my postgrad in Canterbury. So I knew Canterbury. So that was the reason for that really i didn't realize there's a two-year gap between the novels um i don't particularly know why that is when you mention warlock i've got a lot of fondness for warlock because it had the conceit or concept of the living drug which i i think i don't know if anybody else had done it before probably people have done it since but it was quite a cool idea and it was as far as i know it was original to me it was quite a groovy idea and i, I still think if nothing else that novel has that going for it I think it um I think it has an awful lot going for it um which is a shame because it's probably out of print now it's almost definitely out of print um but yes there's that remarkable idea of the living drug and the way that uh, people are able to um use it and use their kind of latent psychology to kind of exclude a member of the group and and actually kill oh, someone. Do, and do, do they, like, you have to forgive me because it's been a long time, but, but oh, do sure. they die like, like uh, the, the, the old Eskimo who's left out on an ice drift because they're... Sweet sundered from all social con that's again, exactly a cool idea <laughs> exactly yeah there's there's you want to plunder some of this stuff it's great and it was your that's idea so you can use it again <laughs> yeah well that's interesting because 
I was full of those kind of cool ideas at the time. So I, I wasn't really a science fiction writer, but I did have this fascination with sort of the, um, the subliminal bandwidth of human behavior, which is sort of what we're talking about. Yeah. And I think the other thing War Warlock did was it, or maybe did is the wrong word, maybe represented, but I think that was one of the very first books and certainly the first book of yours that really had that unputdownable quality in the writing style that you've carried through uh, ever since. Oh, well, that's um, really was... great to hear because I always look at those books and because they're Doctor Who books, they're kind of, do you know the expression redheaded stepson? <laughs> yeah, I'm aware of it. Yeah, so what it means, if anybody doesn't know, it means a sort of unloved child. And that's because I they weren't entirely my own creation. I had to write about the Doctor. That was a given. Uh, fair enough. But also there was editorial interference. And for all those reasons, I've sort of thought, I've ended up over the years not going back to them and just thinking that they were um, early efforts that didn't come off. But it sounds, I mean, you've said nice things about them now and other people have. I mean, I remember Russell T. Davis saying he loved them, which was very kind of him. Um, but maybe there is more value there that, that I'm aware of. And I should if not go back to them, at least get somebody to do a synopsis of them for me of the stuff I can recycle. <laughs> you, It always felt like you were, as you say, kind of you had to include the Doctor. That was a given. Um, but you were doing your own thing and you were populating these books with your own characters and telling stories that I guess you wanted to tell. Well, that was the thing. that I didn't particularly want to write a Doctor Who novel, but I did want to write a novel. So I sort of... It was one of those annoying things where... I'm not sure that they were entirely satisfactory as Doctor Who books because I wanted to do my own thing. And so that was always pulling against the brief, which isn't an ideal place to be. And then again, like the Cat's Cradle pseudo trilogy, they did this, they, they decided that they had to have these recurring characters, like this bunch of other characters that they foisted upon us. And suddenly they had to appear in all the books, which again is stupid kind of, the silly thinking that you have to have this serial element, otherwise people won't buy the next book, which is just not so. And again, it kills it for the writer. So <laughs> I would include these characters in the most perfunctory and kind of heel-dragging and unenthusiastic way, because I just didn't want to do it. <laughs> and they actually had some kind of bean feast, some kind of get-together for all, you know what you in America would call a rubber chicken dinner for all the New Adventures writers. And they got, and they circulated a questionnaire saying, what can we do to improve the regular characters? And I wrote, kill them. <laughs> that was my response. And I, and I meant it, you know, like, just get rid of them. So there are all these things that sort of prevented me doing the novel I wanted to, but the novel I wanted to do wouldn't have been a Doctor Who novel anyway. So I, you know, having signed up for it, I needed to do a really good I, I, you know, it's a, I always want to do a decent job and I hope I did do a decent job for people who are Doctor Who fans. I know that I use the Doctor very sparingly and part of that may well have been because I was itching to use my own characters, as you said, but also I think the Doctor needs to be used sparingly and adroitly um, as opposed to being overexposed as we were talking about it at the top of this this interview. And um, 
Yeah, I, I, there was this joke going around that I used the doctor so little that, that one day when I wrote my own non-doctor novel, that the doctor would be on every page of it. <laughs> <laughs> I think Re Rebecca Levine, I think, might have made that joke. She was very nice. She was one of my editors at, at not Titan, forgive me, I'm working for Titan now, writing books for Titan now, uh, for, at Virgin. Um, Peter Darville Evans was sort of the lead guy, and then he had a bunch of talented people working under him, of whom Rebecca was very talented. Yeah, I think um, I think you're you're right in that certainly in a novel you have to find a different way to use the Doctor because you can't have someone in a long scarf running up and down a corridor because that doesn't work in prose. And I think the more successful of these books are the ones that do something different with a character who has been around for, you know, now 60 years, but at the time over 30 years, and there's very little innovation you can really bring to that. You also can't be, I won't say can't, but it's very difficult to be inside his head because you, for reasons of wanting to maintain the mystery, I mean, there probably are, would be a very cool way of being inside his head if you did it very shrewdly and very sparingly. Uh, someone like Ben Aronovich, I'm sure, could pull that off. But yeah, so that's an additional problem with the Doctor because I, I, you can't really use him as too much of a viewpoint character because he's too alien and uh, should be too alien and unknowable. And, you know, all his thoughts would be in at least 12 dimensions. And again, that would be very disconcerting that's exactly, for the reader. That's exactly it. He, <laughs> he, he would not be like us, which is the whole deal with him. Is he should be alien. So uh, the new adventures kind of finished in the the well it, specifically in May 1997. If you want me to be pedantic about it, um, you drifted in and out of Doctor Who fiction. You also wrote this bad boy, The Wise. The Wise. If you liked that stuff in Warlock, there's lots of stuff in The Wise which is like that. Well, I love The Wise. It always felt like your kind of Neil Gaiman moment. Oh um, well, that's that's really good because when I wrote it, people couldn't make head or tail of it like uh they just thought it was so strange but if you they didn't have neil gaiman as a reference point at the time somebody uh, because I, I know i sent it to other publishers before it ended up with virgin worlds because i remember there was this reader's report they sh that they sh shared with me when they rejected it it said uh, it's like quentin tarantino with the occult, which is not a good combination. Oh, well, that sounds like a great fucking combination. It's pretty bloody good, isn't it? I mean, you yeah. know. <laughs> but I, yeah, um, it was my first attempt to do my own proper novel, and it was overambitious. I didn't entirely carry it off, but there's some cool stuff in it. The, the thing that I remember, I'm getting goosebumps thinking about now, is something that I was, you're talking about favourite science fiction. I've always loved this, this is an incredible story by Robert Heinlein, called The Unpleasant Profession of Jonathan Hogue. Isn't that a great title? That's so wonderful. It's sort of, he he's known for sort of hard science fiction, spaceships and spacesuits. But this is this incredibly strange book, a nut book, book, short story. And there's a bit in it in which the world's kind of dissolving and somebody's driving their car along and they, they see the cop and they stop and they wind down the window to tell the cop that something terrible is happening. And like, there's just this void out there when the window opens and they wind the window back up and everything's fine again. Oh, that's fantastic. So I remember doing a sort of homage to that in this. So it was a totally kind of nuts novel, but um, I'm still, yeah, I think I, I think it was a really good shot, over ambitious, didn't do anything, quite like the cover, 
Because like the first they they tried the, the first cover they tried, which you could still find online, because for years on Amazon it had the cover that we didn't use, right? Because the way oh. I, Amazon does that, like they get an advanced copy, then you can never get it out of the system. It was yeah. sort of a picture of supposed to be a picture of a skull and something else, but it just looked like a bowl of melting ice cream. It was a terrible cover. So I quite like the the chick with the um. It's actually a depiction of um spontaneous combustion. The other presiding memory of the Virgin Worlds was like there was some kind of publishing magazine, or maybe it was um science fiction magazine like Starburst. Anyway, there's this interview about Virgin Worlds with Peter Darvel Evans and the writers. And you immediately, when you, the magazine came out, you immediately understood the whole thing because there was this on the left, as you know, you have the picture on the left hand side and the text on the right, and there's this full page photo. And there was this photo of Darvel Evans, like his face was huge. And there was these two little figures over his shoulder, like, you know, the devil and the angel in a cartoon. And these were the other writers, like, uh, because it was all about him, right? He was like, I'm in the foreground, the writers in the background. That was sort of, um, that was symbolic of the, the I mean, Peter Darvel Evans was a talented guy, but he was a huge ego. And he got his own way about things that weren't, I thought, to the detriment of stuff like one of the, just it's like one thing which still bugs me he would never remember the name of my character in the book so i ended up changing the character's fucking name because he couldn't he kept getting it wrong but <laughs> I still, I, you know that's the tail wagging the dog if ever there was one so yeah so virgin worlds was a strange enterprise it was peter darvel evans little vanity project but god bless him because I wouldn't have had a chance to have my novel published. I'm very pleased that I did have my novel published. Nothing happened, but it, I did write another novel. It was my own novel. And you get better at writing it through doing it. So thank you very much, Peter Darwell Evans. Presumably the rights are back in your court now, so you could always give it a, a bit of a lick of paint and, and try and put it out again. Um, as with the New Adventures books, I think the thing to do is really just to, to strip mine it for anything. <laughs> you know, to or, or do that. Yeah. For parts, perhaps. I mean, I'm probably doing an injustice to these books because I'm sure there are people out there who love them. So that's probably a horrible thing to say. But that's. I feel more like that we should take them to a hotel, drug them, and and steal their organs <laughs> <laughs> rather than reprint them. So what a horrible thing to say about my own books because you know they are my children. It's true. That just, Stephen Gallagher said that to me once because I was thinking I was talking about whether I should list all my books. You know. You know, that says by the, the yeah. same author at the beginning of the yeah. book in the front matter. Um, I said, well, should I include like my Doctor Who books and my judge? And he said, they're all your children. He's, he's a very good writer, very wise writer. And yeah, so I've decided now I'll have, I've already done, like Graham Greene used to distinguish between his novels and his entertainment, you know, like, you, you know, it's a two tier system, right? <laughs> so I think I'll do something similar with that with my, you know, plus, in the wonderful age, post-ironic, postmodern age we're in now, it's kind of cool to have written these sort of pop art novels, which, you know, are featuring characters like Judge Dredd and the Doctor from Doctor Who. So, yeah, they're my entertainments again. We um, we're in, I suppose, the around about the time of the millennium. I think you were doing. Did you say some Judge Dredd work as well? So what happened after the Wise? I did a series of novels for. It's it's gone under a variety of names, 
I think they were called Black Library at the time. They were Games Workshop. They had acquired the rights to do um, novels based on the 2000 AD characters. So I did Judge Dredd. I did Strontium Dog. Did I do... I had the impression I did three. <laughs> you see, you can see how... Uh, you know, I'm trying to think. Durham Red? Um, nope. Strontium nope. Dog? So I did, Robo Hunter? Maybe I perhaps I only did two, but uh, so I did I definitely did a Judge Dread one, which I was quite fond of. <laughs> it's called Swine Fever, and I wrote a Strontium Dog novel, which um, it was called Fistful of Strontium because it was a, a spaghetti western. But then they had to change the title because they had a book that fell through, and my book had to be published with a title. So this is you can tell how annoying all this was. <laughs> I don't see why your title needs to change because they've had a problem with a different book. I know. There had to be a book with that title, kind of. So I, <laughs> it, it's been called Day of the Dogs or something. Anyway. Marvelous. So those all had certain virtues because the only way you can write something is if you are somewhat in love with it. So I did interesting thing. I remember with the Strontium Dog novel, I wanted to write it like a Henry Cutner, 50s science fiction novel, specifically like Fury with a lot of pace and a lot of kind of um, space opera stuff. But um, th there, I wasn't particularly proud of any of these books. But then I'd written a lot of stuff because I'd also did uh, another Doctor Who novel for BBC Publishing, which is called Adam Bomb Some Blues. Bomb Blues. Not bad at all, but still, you know, um, child of a lesser god. But then the thing that happened, Ian, was I wrote a good book. A book I was proud of. And that book was called Script Doctor. And it was my memoirs about my memoir about working on Doctor Who. Because to my eternal credit, I had kept a diary during that period. And I wrote this really good memoir. Anybody who's interested, I say this with no vanity whatsoever, because if anybody's interested in that era of the show, they should get that. It's the only book of its kind, really about working in British television during that era, but about specifically about Doctor Who, absolutely. So I was very proud of that book. And I consider that that my writing of good books really began there. Because although I, The Wise was very ambitious and it was my first real novel, I didn't think it quite came off. And then the odd thing was, uh, obviously, Script Doctor was a work of nonfiction. I then wrote a work of fiction, which I'm very proud of. But the strange thing is, it was based on a TV series. <laughs> like, But by based on everything I've said, you should think that that would rule it out. But it was based on The Prisoner, which is a TV show I love. And I wrote a prisoner novel called Miss Freedom. And the thing was, not only did I love The Prisoner as a TV show, I instantly saw how I could do a really fun, interesting novel about it uh, because I was a big fan of 60s spy novels. And this was really in that corner. And people know about James Bond, but they may not know about Len Dayton or Adam Hall, who wrote the Quiller books. Adam Hall's a pen name for Alison Trevor which is also a pen name. So it's like a hall of mirrors. <laughs> but anyway, the, the Quiller books are great. And so are the Len Dayton books. So I thought, oh, I could do uh, a prisoner novel like it was uh, a Quiller novel or a Dayton novel. And that's what I did. And it came off really well. And I'm very proud of that book. So it is a prisoner novel, but it's, anybody wants to check it out, it's called Miss Freedom. I'm, so I felt that my novel writing career began in earnest with that. All of which brings us to where we really want to be, I think, which is talking about the vinyl detective. Absolutely. So when 
because there's there's always a bit of lag but when did the idea kind of strike you when did you write the first book and when did it ultimately get published so after not after but while ben was at waterstones (laughs) working (laughs) for you ian he was writing uh, he he always obviously he's a writer he's a great writer He, he wasn't destined to work in a bookshop he was destined to write stuff great stuff he was working on a novel and he published it and it's a big bestseller. Hooray! Yeah, yeah. And it was really good. So I said to Ben, because we'd been a couple of broke writers together, like, you know, <laughs> lending each other, like whoever had a credit card with some credit left on it would pay for groceries for both of us. That's the way it was. I mean, I'm, I'm not exaggerating either. So he'd become a big success. And I said, well, what's, I always quote this story, but it's worth quoting. I said, what, what is the secret? Because I've been trying to write, but like I deliberately, I'd sat down and deliberately tried to write big bestsellers. Oh, this would be great. This would be a huge bestseller. And of course, that's not the way to do it. Because Ben said, what you need to do is not try and second guess the marketplace or write what you imagine people will want. You have to write what you genuinely yourself love and write, write about that. And I thought, well, I genuinely love, you know, record collecting and vinyl and hi-fi and all this, and jazz, and all this stuff. So I thought, okay, what about uh, a record collector turned sleuth, the vinyl detective? So that's how that came about. And I sat down, and I wrote the first novel. And I remember thinking at the time, like, this is the novel that I, because as always, I was broke, and I was up against it. I just thought, I've got got to write the book that'll be my big breakthrough. And so there was so much writing on this book, like my entire, I felt my entire life depended on this book. And I actually had an agent at the time because I've had phases when I haven't had an agent. I had a very powerful, important agent, um, Julian Friedman at Blake Friedman. So I sent him this novel, which was going to be a huge bestseller and change my life. And Julian didn't read it for six months. I'm looking at six months to the day before he got back to me. And like, can you begin to imagine what it was like waiting during that time? Like, and so the only way I could keep my sanity was to occupy myself by writing the next novel. I thought, I'll write the next novel in the series. I'll occupy my mind. And I did that, and it turned out rather well. And when I finished the second one, I thought, well, I might as well do a third. Now, by which time several things had happened, Julian had read the novel and didn't like it much. And often when you're a writer, I've been a writer and an editor, a script editor, but basically an editor. So I've worked both sides. I've been a poacher and a gamekeeper. And you often run up this, against these people who say that they don't like something you've written, but either they can't tell you why, or they proceed to tell you why, but everything they're saying is, can I say bullshit? Absolutely, you can. <laughs> everything they're saying is bullshit, not because they aren't sincere in feeling there's something wrong, but they can't articulate what's wrong. And very destructively, they feel they have to say something and give you some pointers. So they say all this stuff, which means nothing. Because like they might have done a Robert McKee course if you're a screenwriter and they they tell you all these things, you know, at the halfway turning points in the wrong place, you know, like nonsense, but they feel they have to say something which is stupid. So what you have to do is you have to think, number one, are they right? Is there something wrong with it? And if, if there is, you have to kind of work out what's wrong with it with no help from them. So I thought, okay, he did say one thing that gave me a bit of a clue. There was a section that was as a diary or as a letter, and he felt that went on too long. But basically, the book went on way too long. So the book was huge because it's like the wise. You get ambitious and you want to write a huge book, big, successful book. 
So I cut, I'm not exaggerating, about 30,000 words out of it. Wow. And as is so often the case with my own writing, I, if it doesn't work, it often just need, needs take a bunch of stuff away. And what's left does work. So, so I had this way better streamlined version. And by this time, I'd also written the third novel. So my agent had three novels. And he couldn't sell them. He didn't particularly want to sell them. He wasn't very enthusiastic. He kept trying to pitch them as a noir, but they, they're not a noir. I mean, the only noir thing about them is that they've got a first-person narrator, really. They're mm. cozy. They're cozy crime. Mm. And he couldn't wrap his head around this. And he couldn't sell them. He couldn't sell them. He, just gave, he didn't really care. And he just gave up. And sometimes having a high-powered agent isn't a good thing because the, although on paper it looks great, they're going to be consumed with all their high-powered clients. They're not going to be consumed with nurturing you and getting your career started. But so those books, I had those three books, and I was going to write the fourth, and I just thought, what am I doing? I, I felt like I was a, a lunatic making paper dolls, right? <laughs> like, here's another one. Like, no, nobody cares. I thought, so hmm. I, I shouldn't have. I should have kept writing the fourth book because I eventually had to write it anyway, and it would have saved me some time if I had written it. <laughs> so I had three books on the shelf, and that was it. There was nothing. But what I did do is I showed some friends the books as PDFs and a couple of friends. I mean, it's not fun reading a PDF, but a couple of friends did. And one of my friends who did is this lovely guy called Guy Adams, who's a writer himself. And he's, we sort of talked about maybe doing a project together and it didn't quite come off, but we always stayed in touch. And one day he said to me, there's this new editor at Titan Books called Miranda Dewis. She's there, edits the crime line, the crime fiction and I think she'd quite like, I think she'd like the vinyl detective. Why don't you send it to her? So I sent her an email saying, obviously saying, Guy Adams suggested I get in touch. Uh, he's, I've got this book. Would you like to take a look at it? And she emailed me back saying, of course, I'll take a look at it. But I have to let you know, I'm about to start jury service. So be prepared for a long silence. I sent the book in and she got back to me and said, oh, jury service was canceled. <laughs> right. <laughs> so she read the book and she said, oh, I like it. And I said, well, I have to break it to you. There's two more of them. <laughs> she said, God bless her. She said, send me the other two books. And I sent her the other two books. And then she got in touch. And she told, she's, these are the two greatest sentences any writer can ever hear. She said, we want to publish the books. We don't want any changes. <laughs> can you imagine how wonderful it is to hear that? It was just so great. So I, I feel an enormous love for Miranda Jewish welling up in me now. But if not for, well, I suppose if not for Benaronovich, Guy Adams, Miranda Jewis, no vinyl detective. So, and that we published the three books. Um, the fourth book came along and I'd started writing it. And uh, I, I kind of wish I'd gone on writing it because although I had the story in my head, I couldn't just pick up where I'd left off. I'll tell you what it was like, Ian. They used, they, there's often these documentaries on TV uh, in England, I'm sure everywhere, about people who want to build their dream house. Like, this is it. we're going to build our dream house, right? Mm -hmm. And before <laughs> the nightmare that was Brexit, let's not get into that, but obviously it's a shit show yeah. beyond description, that you used to be able to do this thing. You could order, I think it was called a hoof house. Basically, you order a house from Germany, right? These guys from Germany come over with this house, pre sort of, and they put it together. They German crafts and build your house. They bring the stuff over, and you've got a house, right? Brilliant. The only thing the British people have to do is they have to pour the concrete for it, right? <laughs> so they, they had to, that's all the British workmen had to do to pour the concrete. And they came and they poured the concrete. They didn't have enough concrete, right? Oh, we're going to go go back and get some more concrete. The problem with concrete when it sets is 
you've got this two batch of concrete and there's going to be like this crack down the middle. And that's just an extended metaphor to what happened to my book. I'd poured the concrete and I come back four years later. And I, there's no way I could pour a second batch. And it was going to, so I sort of had to start again, but it was fine. I mean, I, it was much the same novel as it would have been, but I think it was better because I, I knew more about what I was doing by now. So that was the fourth one, which was called flip back. Yeah. Yeah. On the island. I just, just said the one because people love that island. I just said the one on the island. Yeah. I mean, I so as a as a reader, as a fan of these books, I absolutely didn't notice much of a tonal shift that you might have expected if the writer had had a break of a you know a, an extended break. I think I rewrote the front end, but I, I right. Just there's not really much of a spoiler alert. Um, it begins with uh, our heroes visiting this rock star and somebody comes to assassinate the rock star. So I'd sort of done a version of that. I think I just rewrote the version of that and then carried on because that's as far as I'd gone. But I always had that, what I'm going to call the KLF notion of what it was about, which is people may not remember the KLF was this crazy wild band and they burned a million pounds, dollars. They did. Whichever one it was, it was a lot of money. They just burnt it. <laughs> they burnt it. Like as a kind of crazy work of art, like a, uh, living installation anyway they did that so i thought wow let's write about a band that did that <laughs> and that's what i did <laughs> so i think as um i think when the first couple of books came out i was um i was working for virgin megastore i was living in dubai at the time and i was their buyer wow. um and we we took them in the hard sell for me was that cozy crime wasn't really a thing in the middle east because oh. everyone's kind of you know under the age of 40 and um you know it's not but what i but what struck me immediately about the books was that they had this phenomenal appeal in that they were cozy crime which was and i can't remember the exact timeline of which tv shows came along when but i think by then it was a fairly well cemented genre that was gaining popularity but it was by a man about man's things like vinyl and cats <laughs> and you know it had a very feminine quality there was a love story there were cats um there was this desire for sort of coffee and inertia which is a, a very beautiful thing and so it managed to appeal to such a wide readership that as a bookseller um you're able to pitch it to absolutely every market everyone that comes in your shop i do say sometimes warning may contain cats because <laughs> but the cats the cats is an interesting thing because i was writing the books and talking to ben all the time because obviously he was i'd sort of start off as his mentor and now he was my mentor you know the the uh the student has become the master and <laughs> i said look this guy is heavily based on me because it's all low-hanging fruit because then i don't have to do any research like his hi-fi is my hi-fi you know his neighborhood is my neighborhood and so on and so on and uh and he said are you gonna put your cats in it i said no that's a step too far i'm not gonna put the cats in he said oh you've got to put the cats in and he was right because although the cats never feature majorly they're sort of a kind of crucial piece of the puzzle and it's just it, it just adds something to it and also they're not they're cats jim but not as we know them because they're not like foolishly cutesy cats anybody who's really owned a cat will recognize the cat shenanigans that, that ensue. Yeah, and so I included the cats. Um, and the other thing is you touched on his relationship with Nevada. And so our hero is, if anybody doesn't know, which is most people listening to this, our hero is kind of a nerd. He's sort of like a, a, a geek. 
But he's lucked out. He's married this, not married, because they're not married. He's living with this fantastic, beautiful woman. And the thing I'm very proud about that is, in the first book, it was a classic detective story in which a beautiful, mysterious woman knocks on the door and she brings a case to our hero. So that was Nevada. In the first, she starts off as the femme fatale. But then, because there's, there's two kinds of detectives, well, mostly, most detectives are are uh, twisted loners, right? But there's a very rare other kind of detective who's a double act, like Nick and Nora Charles, you know, or I think Macmillan and Wife. So, you know, the husband and wife team. So I did this thing, which I'm very proud of, which is sort of in the first book, the first book was kind of a Dashiell Hammett novel, like the Maltese Falcon with the lone detective and, and the mysterious, beautiful, morally ambiguous woman who brings a case to him. And then they get together. And from the second book on, it's Nick and Nora Charles, which is another uh, the Thin Man. It's another Dashiell Hammett uh, detective story about, about a married couple who get along really well and have a great time together and solve mysteries. So it, it, and it's making them a team like that was really great. And I love the fact that it went from one kind of crime, classic crime novel to another. And it's not just that it's the two of them. They got their little gang of friends, a little Scooby gang of friends. And that when people talk to me about the books and loving the books, and the great thing about social media is that that can happen. That's what they always cite. It's always the characters. And it's, I always ask who the favorite character is. And it, it is always, you can't, can't guess. Like some people it's Tinkler, some people it's Nevada, you know, um, mm. it's never stinky. Who's sort of like, no, no one likes stinky Stanmer. <laughs> <laughs> but I do have to say, I've just started at new series novels. Do you know anything about this? So, I have seen advanced preamble, but do tell do tell us all about well, it. Well, um, the reason I just mentioned Stinky Stammer, who's like the bête noir of our hero, is sort of a media whore. <laughs> well, this is the protect. This is a very closely related series. It's about um, a fan of vintage paper because more like low hanging fruit. I thought, what else do I love besides records? I love vintage paperback. So I've created a sleuth who is uh, deals in vintage paperbacks. Uh, and I thought I thought about the various changes I could make. So it's a woman protagonist. That's different. Uh, instead of being told in the first person, it's told what they call a close third person, which means Cordelia wasn't happy about the situation, but she knew she was going to have to go through the door and into the room anyway. Mm -hmm. So you're talking about what's in her head, but it's not like I was waiting outside the door. I could hardly bring myself to turn the knob. It's not first person. Sure. So that's that's different. She, this is all very mechanically, and she likes dogs instead of cats. <laughs> and here's the, the big twist is like she, she's very our hero in the vinyl detective. Uh, there, he's quite a straight arrow, he's like quite a boy scout. I mean, not to a tedious extent, but he's very morally unwavering. Whereas, um, there's much more uh gray tones in the in Cordelia. Cordelia is. Uh, she doesn't hesitate to bend the rules and break them. And she's quite a naughty girl. And it, knowing all this, it may not surprise you to learn that she's Stinky Stanmer's sister. <laughs> she's oh, called Stanmer. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> and she obviously she hates Stinky too. And like part of her problem, part of the reason that she's a bit of a uh, a bad hat is because she had to grow up with Stinky, right? But anyway, <laughs> so that's all kind of sideline. Won't mean anything to, to anybody who doesn't know the vinyl detective, but anybody who does, that might not only reassure them that this overlaps with the world of the vinyl detective it's also an important signal that it's different because i think 
some people might be scandalized by some of the goings on and, and the way that our heroine behaves in these books. But if anybody is and they don't like the paperback sleuth, they can just rest easy because there's another vinyl detective novel on the way. It's going to come out late because this book is sort of in the publisher's schedules, has preempted the next vinyl detective novel. But in about it, within 12 months from now, I'm hoping that there will be a vinyl that there should be. Vinyl Detective novel out, another Vinyl Detective novel, and another one of the paperback sleuths. And then from now on, there should be one. They're both on a yearly cycle. So every year there should be another book in the series for people in both series. That's incredible. So you're going to essentially become Agatha Christie with your Miss Marple and your Poirot. Oh, that's keep... a great way of putting it. But, <laughs> yeah. but she, she did write more than two a year, didn't she? She was quite prolific. She probably did. I feel like she managed to get through about one a week. There were so many of them. Mag Agatha Christie is really a really good writer, like seriously good. And um, my novel, uh, the one that's the punk one. Oh yeah, that was that was called um, Low Action, right? Low Action. Yes. That was I deliberately said about each time I write one of these my vinyl detective books. These days, I, I try and think what kind of crime novel do I want it to be? Because there's all different kinds of crime novels. This is a little bit, just to mention my favorite crime writer of all time, a guy called John D. MacDonald. He wrote a series about a character called Travis McGee, and they're great books. And he wrote 21 books. And the thing is, the 21st book is as good as the first, maybe better, actually definitely better. So it, the quality never flagged. But in an interview, he said this really insightful thing. He said, I don't think of the Travis McGee books as 21 crime novels. He said, like, one of them is a horror story. You know, one of them is a mystery. One of them is a thriller. So he saw them in different terms to suit the story. So when I wrote Victory Disc, which is the third vinyl detective novel, the one with the green cover, um, I've been reading a lot of Colonel Woolrich, who was a golden age crime writer, best known now for Hitchcock's Rear Window. The, the, the presiding characteristics of a Colonel Woolrich novel were that terrible things happened to the protagonist, like they could get buried alive or something like that. And the suspense was unbearable. So in Victory Disc, I've deliberately put in two set pieces, which were in the manner of Colonel Woolrich, where terrible things happened to the, the people involved. And so uh, I often would think, what kind of crime novel is this? And when I wrote Low Action, I thought, I'm going to do an Agatha Christie. I'm going to do But there are many kinds of Agatha Christie. I'm going to do the kind where... Uh, you set up a whole bunch of interesting suspects. You know, one of them is the killer or the would-be killer, but you don't know which one is, and they're all equally plausible. And the other thing was, um, it wasn't a book about looking for the killers. Somebody had killed somebody. Somebody was going to kill somebody. And you've got all these prospective people who, who, who are the would-be killer. And this guy called Ed Young, who... Uh, I've known for, I knew because he wanted to be a writer and dog too, and we stayed in touch. And he's this great guy. He said, Were you reading Peril at End House when you wrote this? And I was. That, it was completely <laughs> model. And like, there's virtually no similarity, but at the same time, it is totally my take on Peril at End House by Agatha Christie, which I thought was incredibly insightful of him. And all of which is to say, I love Agatha Christie. And if you like Agatha Christie, that was my Agatha Christie vinyl detective novel. Oh, and just to roll back a bit, when my first agent, Julian Friedman, was trying to sell the vinyl detector and he couldn't sell it and didn't really know how to sell it, everybody wanted Scandi Noir, what I call Danish disembowelment, right? <laughs> so I said it wasn't Danish disembowelment, it was a cozy crime. But I thought, you know what? 
can't beat them, join them. So I wrote a Scandi Noir. So book six in The Final Detective uh, is, in fact, it's my Scandi Noir one. It's the one with the purple cover. Oh, the, yeah, um, Attack and Decay, which, Thank which you very I much. have here. Yeah, and I, yeah. I think that's the best in the series. If somebody wants to jump in and just read one novel now, don't start with the first one, because I don't necessarily think the first book in a series is the best book. I know it sounds strange, but there's not such a strong element of serial that you need that. And I'm keenly aware of Patrick O'Brien, who wrote the Aubrey Maturin books. They're about seafaring adventures in the Napoleonic Wars. Mm. If you read the first Aubrey Maturin novel, you may never read another one because it's not that great. It's kind of turgid. But if you jump in anywhere else in the series, you'll be completely enchanted. Then you can go back and read the first one. Knowing the characters, you'll enjoy it. But it's not a good one to start with by any means. And although I don't feel that's a problem with my book, all of which is just to say you can jump in with any of them. And I'd recommend Attack and Decay. And if anybody's a sound engineer, they'll know what that title actually has a meaning. It's not just a cool title. It actually refers to uh, audio engineering stuff. But yeah, so I wrote that was my Scandi Noir. <laughs> well, I mean, it's so it's it's very reassuring to hear that uh, the vinyl detective uh, is ongoing and that um, what's your heroine in the other books called? Her name is Cordelia. Cordelia. She's, she's the yeah. paper, paperback sleuth, Cordelia right. Stammer. And so, of course, the vinyl detective doesn't have a name. <laughs> no, I always wonder if you're going to subtly drop in that his name is, I don't know, Candrew Artmel or something like that. No, um, I'm not the first guy to do this. Dashiell Hammett did with the Con Continental Op, never had a name. Mm. And um, Len Dayton did with his spy, the nameless operative. You can do it if you've got a first person narrator because his name doesn't have to come up if it's always me or i and if people mm. say, they say oh it's you <laughs> it's not not at all difficult to tap dance around not saying his name but as with len dayton if there's ever an adaptation for the screen they're going to want a name and i've got one worked out and it's fine and i'm not going to be precious about it so he will have a name when and if he appears on screen and i say on screen because i think television is the way to go rather than the movies for, for my book like yeah this this is a this is a sunday night um seven seven thirty that kind of time slot i think kind of ongoing I, I think it could easily happen easily be very successful but it just needs i mean we've had interest and, and uh, at least two sort of serious meetings with people who were genuinely interested and one of them wanted to do it and their offer was we want to do it we don't want to give you any money for it. We want to change everything and we don't want you to be involved. And I said, oh, you know what? That's not such a great deal. I think I'm going to say no. And they're like, what? How, how <laughs> could you say no to our great deal? So there you go. I mean, but, it's not it's not the best offer, is it? <laughs> <laughs> no, and but I think it will eventually happen. And especially if my friend Ben's Rivers of London series, which keeps coming, like there's, I think there's been, is it four or five, like, proper serious production companies have optioned it and like, you know, tried to get on screen that I think that will eventually happen. And if that does happen, that will only make it easier for my stuff to happen because I'll have a friend who's got a successful television series, which never hurts if you're trying to get your stuff on television. <laughs> The best is called Vinyl Detective Radio. Right. And you can find it on a platform called Reclaimed Radio. It's also on Medway Pride Radio, but Reclaimed Radio has a uh, better system for 
archiving the shows and accessing them. So Reclaimed Radio, Vinyl Detective Radio. And if anybody wants to buy, go out and find the Vinyl Detective LP, there is a Vinyl Detective LP of music. Oh. You didn't know that. It's classic oh. jazz tracks plus a specially written theme, Vinyl Detective theme by my buddy Joe Kramer, who's a Hollywood composer. And uh, I play his theme at the top and tail of my show every week. So do tune in at some point. if you. And it's not just jazz. I hate to do that, although I'm a jazz nut. There's not a lot of jazz being played at the moment. There's perhaps a couple of tracks per show. There's everything, and it's really good stuff. Hello again. So, when is a Doctor Who novel not a Doctor Who novel? Well, when it's written by author of the master plan, Andrew Cartmel, surprisingly. Welcome to Cat's Cradle, Warhead, which doesn't feature a cradle, what you would traditionally call a warhead, or anything at all to do with the previous novel in this so-called trilogy. It barely even features a cat, or, once again, the title character. Yet it does turn out to be a complex and at times gripping novel, although not without its flaws. This is the manipulative chess master incarnation of the Doctor after all, so it kind of makes sense that he stays in the background, popping up now and again to say something enigmatic and then disappearing, just so he keeps his plans on track. Also no aliens, monsters, renegade time lords, or any other such malarkey. Apart from the telekinetic powers, it's almost more of a techno-thriller heist novel. So in this bleak, dystopian world of the near future, one which depressingly doesn't seem that far-fetched, the bulk of the story falls on Ace and the supporting characters. And what an interesting bunch they are. Unlike Time's Crucible, where I couldn't have cared less about the fate of the bunch of misfits caught up in the Doctor's wake, here Cartmel introduces us to a living, breathing people with lives and histories and problems, vignettes that often lasts a few scant pages, and when some of them are gone, as quick as they're introduced, take Maria the Cleaner, for example, you generally miss them. Reviewers often talk about world building, but this is proof of an author who's great at character building. But it's the bits in between the character moments which I was less enamoured of. Let's get the matter of Justine's drug-fueled hallucination out of the way first. Severed heads rolling into toilet urinals? I'm sorry, what? And given we're this early in the New Adventures range, I'm not sure I can quite believe that the ace of the TV series could hire and command a squad of hardened Kurdish mercenaries, take part in a mass shootout, and happily wander around naked. But it works, I guess. It's certainly action-packed. What's slightly more problematical is the fact that the Doctor seems to be quite cruel in the way he uses people. He lets people die. He abandons poor Maria. He allows Bobby Prescott to be murdered by a gang of street thugs that the Doctor himself has hired. And he uses Vincent and Justine as his ultimate weapon, regardless of the danger it puts them in. Okay, so maybe the ends justify the means. And, and don't get me wrong, I certainly enjoy characters that have a perhaps more grey-coloured moral compass. It's just not how I'd expect the character of the Doctor to behave. This is a well-written novel. It has some interesting things to say about the direction we could be heading in as a society. 
is a well-realised supporting cast, and it cleverly pulls together a whole host of seemingly disparate threads into a cohesive finale. By those standards, it's a successful and enjoyable book. But as I said at the start, I'm not entirely sure it's a Doctor Who book.